Lance is very gracious tonight to uh, answer our questions. I say that because he hasn't heard them yet, and I hope they will be. But uh, those of you who are faithful enough to turn some questions in, we're going to start there. And uh, I think we have some good ones. But I want to go ahead, uh, Seth, if we could go ahead and uh, flip up on the, on the board the Middle East. Uh, Lance, we're going to have a map of, of course, I think you, you know where this is. <laughs> what is the temperature in Israel right now, Lance? Well, probably pretty hot by now. Pretty hot? 100 degrees. 100 degrees, really. He's, by the way, Michael is one of those that doesn't hear when Lance is yelling. Up, up <laughs> he needs a wife. He really needs a wife. Yes, it would have been better if he came to us after he'd been married. <laughs> no, 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 no. no Michael's been so. very good. Yes, he is. Very helpful. He has the legs tonight, by the way. I just want you to know. Uh, I'm going to start off with some of the questions here. And Lance, uh, th- this, is, this is, I guess, from the younger generation. But my generation doesn't know much about the Middle East's history. We hear uh, in, in university and in the news that Israel has taken over Palestinian land, and now Palestinians have no place to go. <laughs> Could you share some light on this conflict? Well, first of all, the conflict is not a political conflict, essentially. Um, it is uh, basically a spiritual one. It goes right back to Abraham and to the promise that God made to him there um, concerning this great nation that would come out of his seed and that in him should all the families of the earth be blessed, that is the Gentiles. So you have a twofold promise. And um, I'm sorry that there are no more of those books, you know, the battlefield, because there we have two or three chapters at the very end of the book which are all to do with God's purpose for Israel. But anyway, to explain the thing, it is absolute rubbish that the Palestinians, uh, um, their homeland was the promised land. It never was. Um, A dear American lady wrote a a book some years ago called From Time Immemorial, in which she did all the research that she could and discovered that nearly all the Palestinians had come basically into what I call the promised land um, during the British mandate because the British mandate created a lot of work. And the Arabs, and I know that for a fact, because when I was there in earlier years, I used to ask Arab friends I had, well, where did you come from? They would say, from Beirut, I'm a Beiruti, or I'm a Baghdadi, from Baghdad, or I am from Cairo. They're all all different places. Now, um, Hanan Ashrawi, who's a lawyer, who says there never was a temple, ever. 
Um, and also, there's a whole lot of other things. I don't know how, as a lawyer, she can say it, but she insists on it. And um, she, all, he, she now says, we were the Canaanites that Israel drove out of the land, you see. But that's, you know, going back some 2,000, almost 2,000 years ago, not quite, but almost. So, I mean, I don't know if this makes it clear that this is a farce, this whole thing. That I remember when I had to live in Egypt for five years, and I, I met somebody who was obviously Arab, and he was very pleasant, and I said to him, um, where were you from? And he said, oh, I'm, I'm from... Uh, I'm from uh, uh, I think it was Lord Lida, he called it in the Arabic, Lida. And then I said, oh, you're Palestinian. Well, I had to scrape him off the ceiling. He was furious. He said, I am not a Palestinian. I am an Arab. They didn't even call themselves Palestinians then. Yeah, the Goldmeir used to say the same thing. Where is this Palestinian liberation organization? Where does it come from? I mean, I mean... The funniest thing is that Menachem Begin, who I personally knew, um, actually used to call himself the, a Palestinian Jew. Because the mandated territory was called Palestine. And from this we get all this problem. We have Palestinian sunbirds. And, and Palestinian fruits and Palestinian flowers and Palestinian bushes. You know, it all comes from the thing. The person who first did it was a man who hated the Jews and he actually used the word Philistine, which in Arabic is Palestine. And uh, so he actually, um, uh, 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 he called... Because he hated the Jews, he called the land uh, Palestine, and it's come into history as that. That is, that is, it is, it is a problem, I'm afraid. So, can, we, can I ask a follow-up? Yeah. Sure. Just to focus the question from a typical, yeah. what I think university students' perspective is that um, specifically concerning the West Bank, when were Palestinians allowed to move in there, and how? What's been the process of increasing the territory? In the mandate, they came. Which is what, what the mandate was from 1920. Okay. From then on, the Palestinians came in huge numbers from surrounding countries. They didn't call themselves Palestinians. They were Arabs and looking so then, for work. And then 48, when Israel became a state, how did that affect? Well, that is true that the Palestinians were driven out. Now, who drove them out? The actual um, Arab armies, uh, you know, that in, when Israel was declared a, a, a state in 1948, the 14th of May by the Gregorian calendar, if we take our Jewish calendar, it was the 5th of Iyar. But anyway, by the Gregorian, it's the 14th of May, 1948. Now, when it was de declared, 
five Arab armies immediately united to attack us. Three of those armies were armed and trained by the British. Egypt, um, Jordan, and uh, one of the others. I'm, I'm not quite sure which. Iraq. All three of them were trained by the British and equipped by the British. Then the whole world held its breath, and Britain in particular said there's going to be a terrible massacre of the Jews, and it serves them right. But in actual fact, what happened was that Arab leaders went round all the places, like Haifa, Lida, and uh, air, other areas, Yafu, Jeffa, and other, uh, other places like Ashkelon and so on, calling on the Palestinians, the Arabs, leave. Get out, because we are going to come back and we're going to massacre the Jews. So the, the Palestinian refugee problem began. Golda Meir actually went round the whole of Haifa with a great big bullhorn, calling on the others, don't go, don't be so stupid to go. If you stay, you will live with us and you will be absolutely uh, part of, our, of the new state. Now, those areas that did stay, for instance, in Jerusalem, there's an area called Abu Ghosh, where the Ark of the Lord came to rest. <laughs> and um, that is now still an Arab area. They refused to flee and welcomed the, the Jewish uh, army. They actually welcomed them. And to this day, on Independence Day, the imam of Abu Ghosh is on the platform, officially, with all the rabbis. And they have absolutely, well, they speak Hebrew, they all work in Jerusalem. I don't know if that answers the question. I had no idea. <laughs> because, well, I mean, let me see if I can summarize what you just said. So the yeah. Palestinians... Occupied the territory uh, starting in 1920 with the uh, British yes. mandate. Yes. And then they were driven out in 48. The Arabs drove them out. Well, they didn't drive them out. They called on them to leave. Uh -huh. And they say that um, uh, they say there were six million. But that's not, not true. Right. At that time, they were about uh, a million and a half. But the area right now described as the West Bank yes. in 48 was a part of Israel. It was a later time that West Bank was given yeah. back away. What I can explain clearly is this, that under the mandate that was given by the League of Nations to um, Britain. In 48. In 1920. Uh, okay. that, that, that was legally uh, Israel. It was to be the homeland of the Jewish people. Now, part of, there was one stipulation. Where there were Arabs living in those areas, they were to be given rights and cared for. Joe Johnson, and wherever there were Arabs that wanted, as in Abu Ghosh, and in some areas of Haifa, and in the Galilee, there was no problem. But uh, uh, the, the Arabs that live, the Palestinians that live in the West Bank, 
um, are basically, um, they say they've been there before Israel. Technically, if they say before 1948, yes, but there were always Jews. there's, There's been a continuous Jewish presence in Jerusalem, and Hebron is the most continuously Jewish inhabited city in the world. That's Hebron. Uh, Jerusalem, we were driven out by the um, uh, Roman emperor, Hadrian. He, he said no Jew would be allowed to live within the city walls. And so fast forward to today, now the debate over the West Bank and the occupation of the West Bank is around what issue? Describe that to everybody. Let me see that I've got that clear. What was that question? Today, the issue of Netanyahu is trying to build settlements in, in the West Bank and Well, and you see, the, you have the whole problem of the word of God. Is it the word of God? Or is it a conglomeration of things, of essays, and a bit like Shakespeare, work of human genius, but actually not God's word at all. If you believe the Bible is God's word, God clearly made a covenant with Abraham. And that Abraham was over what used to be called the promised land. You never hear that term today. Nobody ever talks about the promised land. But when I was first saved, Everyone talked about the promised land. Everywhere it was the promised land, then the promised land, that. Now and again you heard someone speak about the holy land, but very rarely did you ever hear uh, that the most common term was promised land, which immediately brings a question. Who promised it? God. To whom did he promise it? To Abraham. He made a covenant with Abraham, which was an everlasting covenant. Now some of them try to tell us, not just uh, um, Palestinians, but also Christians, that this word in Hebrew, ulam, is not everlasting. It only means time-lasting, for a time. Nonsense. I mean, the scripture is full of this word. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Me'ulam le'ulam, from, from everlasting to everlasting. I mean, it, it's, it's so stupid, the whole thing. And, uh, and, and others say, well, you know, I, no, 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 God never made an eternal covenant. And then others tried to tell us, no, 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 you, you're, this is wrong. He'd made, he did make a, a promise, but the covenant he made was with Abraham and his sons, <laughs> which means Ishmael. He never made a covenant with Ishmael. He, he made a covenant with Hagar about Ishmael and the seed of Ishmael, which the Lord has studiously kept. After all, half the oil in the world is in the hands of Islam. Even in Indonesia and Malaysia, it's in the hands of Islamic nations. It's most interesting he also said of Ishmael, Ishmael's seed, he said, and every man's hand will be against his brother, which has been the, the salvation of Israel 
again and again. They always fight with one another the whole time. Well, look at the whole Islamic world now. You've never seen anything like it. Bombs everywhere. They blow up funeral parties, wedding parties, open markets. I've never had anything like what is happening. But anyway, you know, I mean, the the real thing is that um, the West Bank, so-called, was because the East Bank is Jordan. And when Jordan had quite a part of Israel, she came over and she had both Jerusalem and that area. It's true that there were, there were Arabs living in that area. Now, you asked me about the settlements. The reason you have settlements is because there are Jews who actually believe in God's word. The Old Testament. They don't necessarily believe the New Testament. They believe the Old Testament. And they believe that every, it, all those areas that were part of the promised land should be settled. So now you have a problem. The mandate was that that very area should become the homeland of the Jewish people. But the British had two minds. Right from the beginning, there was a huge amount of anti-Semitism in the top military brass in charge of the mandate. And so, I mean, I can give you examples of it. I mean, King Abdullah, who was assassinated, why was he assassinated? Because he welcomed the Jews. He said that the Jews will bring back to the Middle East, because of their long journey through the Western nations, research and medicine and science and all kinds of things that would uplift those nations. For this, he was King Hussein's father. He was assassinated as he went to pray in the temple area. But, I mean, the British played a double thing. They actually tried to encourage the Arabs uh, to, to cause problems. And they did. Then, when they had riots and Jews were killed, they then sort of said, then we, we have to stop the Jews doing this and the Jews doing that and the other. And they actually did not keep the mandate that was given to them. If they'd kept the mandate that was given to them, it would have been a different story. One last thing on this, very simple, that I spoke with one of the top historians, um, of Jewish historians in Israel, and uh, she knew my story and my background, and she is very warm and very understanding and when I spoke with her I said do you really believe that we could have saved two million Jews if the British had not played double double dealing over the mandate she said at least two million she said all of us historians believe that two million people died in the Holocaust because they were not allowed to come to Israel. When they needed to come to Israel, the door was closed by the British. 
It was the white paper of 1939. It closed the whole area to the Jews, which was absolutely illegitimate, illegal, according to the mandate which they had been given. So this, I, I would suggest to all of you that when you can, let me just plug this for dear Hugh Kitson. Um, he has done a whole series of documentaries. He was a BBC documentary producer. He found the Lord, he came to the Lord, and he has done a whole number of things. Jerusalem, the covenant city, I was the person who introduced that, uh, you know. Uh, then, then he did the, the forsaken promise, which was the, the, the terrible, I don't know what you call it, double-facedness of the British. And now he has done Blessing, Curse, or Coincidence, which is three volumes of documentaries, each documentary about at least half an hour or longer, which traces the whole course through history of those nations which blessed Israel and were blessed, and those nations which cursed Israel and were cursed. Now, I think when you really see that story, if any of you can get it from the, and you see it, it will shock you very, very greatly. Hugh Kitson, K-I-T-S-O-N, Hugh Kitson. And um, uh, recently, the Menachem Begin Center, which is just a stone's throw from my home in Jerusalem, um, they had a huge um, get-together, and everyone came, literally everybody was anything in Israel. I couldn't go because I was elsewhere, out of the country. But I, I've never seen anything like it. The British ambassador was, was invited, the deputy British invited. And they, they found reasons why they couldn't come. I, I should think so too, because they showed the forsaken promise. They would have been horrified. And there present were a whole number of the survivors who had been taken to Mauritius, which is right down near South Africa, off the coast of South Africa. That's where they were taken by the British Navy, or in Cyprus. So, I mean, you know, these people were witnesses of the brutality of what happened the depth charges the Royal Navy used to blow up these vessels filled with Holocaust survivors. There were two million children, babies, toddlers, who survived the Holocaust. Nobody knew what to do with them. So Israel managed to get them back to the, to, to the homeland. Anyway, I don't know if this answers any of these questions. Well, it's, it's, it certainly is. Let, let, let's uh, go there. In the news right now, uh, Lance, is the whole situation in Iraq, the conflict in Iraq. Well, I'm, uh, I can tell you a lot about that. Uh, uh, well, would you do that? <laughs> and uh, I shall proceed to do so, but you're going to be horrified. So you who are, as he's going to talk about tomorrow, good patriots, you better plug your ears while I start. I believe that your State Department and the Obama administration is wholly responsible 
for this mess in the Middle East. If Obama had kept his word about dealing with Syria, we would not have the Iraqi situation. But what has happened was, he said he was going to do something, and he never did it. The result is the situation in Syria has become absolutely crisis. You have over um, uh, something like 150,000 minimally dead of Syrians as a result. Then secondly, you have uh, 200 million refugees, their homes destroyed, their furniture destroyed, everything of their livelihood destroyed. They have flooded into Iraq, they're flooded into Jordan, they're flooded into the Lebanon. They have destabilized those countries. <clears throat> then, now we have a new thing that began in Syria, not with Assad, but with the rebels, uh, and it's called ISIS, um, which is the um, caliphate. It's the idea of setting up a new Islamic caliphate. Uh, in which there will be Sharia law and absolutely a very extreme form of Islam. They have uh, begun to move from Syria into Iraq and thus have destabilized Iraq. Everything west of Baghdad is now in their hands. And it is only a question of time before they take Baghdad. This situation will affect Afghanistan and Pakistan. And I blame the American administration. I think they're utterly stupid. I'm so sorry to use the word, but that's the only word I can use. I don't understand it. Many of the people in the American State Department learn Arabic. They study the Arabic character and mentality and totally misunderstand them. They have absolutely no idea about Islam. No idea whatsoever. So we're in a mess. And of course we are going to suffer. Of course as you know the peace process was one of the most silliest things I've ever heard of. Can you believe that we were being forced by the United States, by the United Kingdom, the, the, the European Union, to make peace with people who have within their constitution our elimination. It's not a peace process. It is a process to national suicide. It's so utterly stupid. I mean, I don't know what else to say about it. I, I think it's crazy. I, I personally believe that Iraq is now a very extremely dangerous situation. If Iraq falls to these people, we will have not just the Middle East, uh, not just Israel, the Middle East will have within it a huge jihadist, extremist Islamic uh, uh, block from there they will shell Israel they will do all kinds of things now of course Mahmoud Abbas that everybody believes is a lot of it and peace loving 
which is absolute nonsense. He is not anything of the kind. He is the architect of the stage-by-stage destruction of Israel. Whereas Hamas believes we should be, and Iran, that we should be destroyed by one big blow, probably nuclear, <laughs> if they can do it, um, uh, they, they believe that, um, he believes, Mahmoud Abbas, believes we shall be destroyed by stage-by-stage stage demoralization of Israel till she gives up. That's his thing. And now, what happened? I mean, this peace process that we were being forced into, um, Kerry comes backwards and forwards and all the rest of it. And I mean, it, it, it's, it's just crazy, really, from one point of view. I mean, I, I don't really know how you can defend it. There's no way you can really defend it. Uh, what did he do? He applied for 15 treaties, uh, to be part of 15 treaties in the United Nations, which means that he will be able to snipe at Israel from within those treaties, you see, with all the, the 15 of them. This is unilateral, the, the, the action he took, which of course signaled the beginning of the end of the peace process. Then the next thing he did was he went to Gaza and made up with Hamas. Hamas has within its constitution the annihilation of Israel. It's actually, you can, you can Google it. It's there, written. The actual annihilation of Israel is in the, con- the constitution. You're talking about Secretary of State. Yeah. Kerry. Kerry, yes. And I mean, he even he said after that... Uh, the, the, the peace process has failed. But I think the Lord was, it was not just the weather. I've, I told you this before, didn't I, about the weather. I mean, that is incredible, I mean, with John Kerry. But I think, it's, I think the Ukrainian crisis uh, was God's stirring up the whole problem so that Kerry's almost out of his mind, poor man. I mean, I don't know what to do with the, the thing. It looks as if Russia's going to do this and uh, Ukraine's going to do that and the European Union wants to uh, do this and that NATO wants to do something else. So there's poor old Kerry nearly out of his mind. What He's got no time to think about the peace process between the Israelis and the Arabs. Then the second thing that happened was suddenly we suddenly find that some 20 cities and towns, including the biggest oil-producing area in the Middle East next to Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, is now in the hands of the rebels. These people who want to set up the caliphate. So, I mean, that's a huge problem. Are you all with me? Or are you yes. Well, let me just take you one further step to give you just how crazy this whole thing is. I know you're good Americans, and you are. I hope that, um, I'm sure, that um, David will tell you that being a good patriot is not necessarily supporting every single thing that America is doing. But um, let me just say about Egypt, it took years, literally years, to wean Egypt away from Russia. 
in order to get them, the Russians built them the Aswan Dam, which cost them millions and millions of dollars. They equipped the Egyptian army. They trained the Egyptian army, which we were very thankful for, because it meant that whenever they made an advance, they stopped to regroup, which gave us time to hit them. So we were very thankful for the, Egypt, for the Russians uh, for this plan that they gave the Egyptians. Now, it was Reagan who managed finally to wean Egypt away from Russia. The Americans stepped in with about $12 billion a year in aid to the economy of Egypt. They have been the ones who've been doing the... Um, equipping of the Egyptian army and joint maneuvers with them, training the army. So what happened? There was an election. How honest it was. I lived in Egypt for years and every referendum we ever had, we all knew it was crazy. Not... Normally we were told 99% people voted for whatever it was. We all knew it was nothing of the kind. Because within a day there were riots all over Egyptian cities. We thought, that's strange. 99% voted for it. And there's riots everywhere. <laughs> and to be, so now, what happens? We have the, the um, Muslim Brotherhood won the election. Morsi became the president of Egypt. Immediately he started about to impose Sharia law not only on Muslims but upon Coptic Christians. Now I know the Muslim Brotherhood. I've seen what they've done. They've crucified young men, literally nailing them to crosses. I've seen how they have destroyed Coptic churches. I worked for three, four years amongst the Coptics in Egypt. I saw with my own eyes, nobody can tell me that what the spokesman or woman of the Muslim Brotherhood tells everybody, we love, we we have very good relations with the cops. Absolute nonsense. They murdered them at every possible turn of the corner. Their churches are destroyed, set on fire. I just, they, I, so what did you do? El Sisi, the commander-in-chief of the Egyptian army, heard what was happening, saw the plans that the Muslim Brotherhood had and arrested the Morsi and indicted him, uh, put him in prison, and he is up for trial. Then they have, they have banned the whole Muslim Brotherhood. It's the right thing to do. The Muslim Brotherhood is banned in Yemen, Libya, uh, Algeria, uh, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq. Every Muslim country has banned the Muslim Brotherhood. Why? Because they believe in revolution by anarchy and murder. That's quite simple. So what happened? I mean, can you believe it? Even some of your Republican leaders, like McCain, actually said this is disgraceful. It's the breakdown of democracy in Egypt. Um, we must cut off money. And, and 
It's not that Obama said it. Kerry said it. We must cut off our aid to it. We have no further maneuvers with the Egyptian army. And no, um, what did he say? Um, and no um, equipment of the Egyptian army. What happened? Saudi Arabia, originally America's greatest supporter, Muslim supporter in the Middle East, was horrified. They gave $12 billion in place of the Americans to the Egyptian army. <laughs> they backed al-Sisi, saying what he was doing was right because they have banned the Muslim Brotherhood in Saudi Arabia, the home of Mecca and Medina. I find it amazing. Then here's the next thing. Al-Sisi goes to Moscow and signs a pact with the Russians. So the Russians are back in Egypt. They are now going to equip the Egyptian army and do joint maneuvers with them. I, 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 we in Israel say... The Americans have gone from gaff to gaff, if you know the understanding gaff. They've gone from one stupidity to the next one. One wonders how they could be so silly. You know, there's an old saying in Latin, I won't say it fully, but I'll tell you what the translation is. It was to do when you had all the gods, you know, not, not our god, but with the Roman gods, the Hellenic gods. They used to say, when the gods want to destroy a nation, they first make its leaders mad. Now say it again. When the gods want to destroy a nation, they first make its leaders mad. I think that's exactly what's happening. I think I told you from the beginning, those of you who remember when I first came, when Larry first asked me, I said to you, if, if Obama is, is, is elected, it will be a judgment of God. So I, I, I mean, it's not that you don't have clever people, but I mean, Kissinger was at least brilliant in his handling, I don't always agree. He made a stop, uh, instead of going into Cairo and Damascus, he made a stop on the edge of Damascus, on the edge of Cairo. But I mean, at least he was brilliant. And, uh, I mean, I, I've never seen anything like this. I, I think the whole American foreign policy in the Middle East is a disaster. And I think it's going to have terrible consequences because these Muslim extremists will in the end pour into Afghanistan and Pakistan and probably there will be missiles finally that will be fired on the Western nations. It's so stupid. I, I, uh, sorry, ask another no, question. Uh, Get me off this one. Hmm? Bad design. I have a hard time thinking it's stupidity. Somehow I think it's bad design. 
by design. Oh, I see what you're saying. Well, I know others who feel that too. They feel that, that, that Obama is actually out to destroy. But I find it very hard to believe that, that he actually is out to destroy America's greatness. Well, we won't go there uh, tonight. I think you um, could be. <laughs> we did, and he won. Uh, let's, uh, uh, Lance has mentioned uh, just the Russia, Russia influence in Egypt. And uh, so what, uh, what else is in the news right now is Russia and, uh, and what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, if we can flash that up there, Seth, just for a minute. And I'd like to give uh, Lance's perspective on, on uh, Putin and, and what is happening in Russia and what you believe is... Well, Putin is an incredibly difficult character to analyze. He was a, originally a KGB leader, which is not good. On the other hand, Putin has said some extraordinary things recently. For instance, on the British um, uh, BBC World Service, he actually said that we must thank the Russian church for all that it has done in forming, formulating, and, and producing the Russian character. He said we, have so, we are so much in debt to... Uh, the Russian church. I think that's extraordinary. Then he also said <clears throat> that he wished that, um, that uh, Russia would be as great as it was under Catherine the Great. <laughs> oh, that's a very big Russia, let me tell you. Because Finland was part of Russia at that point. Finland got its independence only in about 19, when was it? 18 or something like that. So, I mean, really, that's that amazes you. Putin is a very hard person to analyze. What does he really... He also on the BBC said, the greatest tragedy of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Empire. So he still believes in the Soviet Empire and he wants to bring it back. He actually said, uh, he mentioned Kazakhstan as one of the areas he would like to see back in the Russian Federation. So, I mean, it's very hard to analyze what's happening really in Russia, but some very extraordinary things are happening in Russia. Uh, I think it's extraordinary, some of those things. You can see on the map up here uh, what Lance is talking about. Yeah. Um, Ukraine over to the left. You might, uh, can you flash up a bigger picture of Ukraine? Yes. Where, and there's Kazakhstan. That, yes, brown part you see yeah. is uh, the Ukraine. And then the other part is Russia. I mean, Russia is enormous still. It's all the way to the Far East, Vladivostok. But, um, and I'm sure there's going to be trouble with Russia in the end, if, if we believe Ezekiel 38 and 39. Uh, Something's going to happen in the end. But it does seem amazing to me that the gospel is now being preached everywhere in Russia and in all the so-called Eastern European nations that were under the Soviets. Poland, Romania, 
Hungary, Bulgaria, uh, wherever you look. It, uh, and what has happened in Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, and uh, Kazakhstan is incredible. Oh, we had to praise the Lord. But uh, what, how much further it's going to go, I don't know. Mm. Are there any particular things you think I should mention? Tell me. <laughs> if there are. Well, there's so much. <laughs> um, yeah, all right, we're going to ask. Uh, let, me, let me go through the questions we're asking first. Uh, what is happening uh, with Netanyahu? Uh, as the leader, I mean, what, what is your opinion of the work? Is, and also the Knesset, what, any changes going on with, with the present situation? What's happening? The well, Knesset I, being there. I think Bibi Netanyahu is a very um, clever man. And he, uh, he really, he has reckoned, I think, that the Palestinians will shoot themselves in the foot. And in the end, they've done so. The uh, unilateral thing about the 15 treaties in the UN and then the reunion with Hamas just finished the whole thing. Even the Americans had to say, it's over. They will try to re... re they will try to re resurrect it in a new guise, I think. But just at present, they've got so many problems with the Ukraine, with, with, with um, uh, uh, Iraq, that I, I think the United States has got enough trouble without trying to sort of reopen the Israeli-Palestinian thing. But Bibi Netanyahu has been quite clever, I think, uh, you see, you have to remember that the government of Israel is a coalition government. We have an extreme right wing, which I think is very, very good, with Naftali Bennett. And then we have an extreme left wing side of the coalition, which is Yair Lapid. He wants to give away anything if we can only get peace. So he will give away any territory, including half of Jerusalem and a good deal more. The American idea is to support the Palestinians in their quest to have a Palestinian state in the West Bank and to have half, at least half of Jerusalem, including the Temple Mount and the Western Wall, which is the most sacred place for Jews. Uh, so... I think Netanyahu has been very clever the way he's handled it because um, he couldn't do anything other than what he's done but it's, he, he must have faith somewhere. How strong is the coalition? Uh, I guess it's on reasonably side. strong. Naftali Bennett makes bad sounds every now and again about the, for the settlers. He's a great supporter of the Zionist dream. Yair Lapid doesn't believe in the Zionist dream. So, in other words, if I put it another way, Naftali Bennett believes in his Bible, whereas Yair Lapid doesn't believe in his Bible. It's as simple as that. Netanyahu has a Bible study in his home, and every week they have one in the Knesset. 
And his son won the Bible uh, uh, thing for, for Israel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, nothing young. So, I mean, in a way, I think Netanyahu has a lot of Christians who have a, uh, even Messianics that have a real contact with him and speak to him. What do you feel is the number one thing we could be praying for the Messianic believers in Israel? What is, what is their need? I would pray for the breath of God to go right through the messianic communities. A lot of very good things, but there are also a lot of divisions. You know, the Jew, Jews are by nature very opinionated, <laughs> as you've probably discovered. And um, it always reminds me of David Ben-Gurion, the first Prime Minister of Israel, when he was asked um, by an English um, uh, uh, reporter, um, what is it like to be Prime Minister of Israel? And he said it's like being Prime Minister of three million Prime Ministers. <laughs> That's about the truth. And that this kind of problem also spills over into the messianic communities, new assemblies, because there is a lot of opinion, either for or against matters, and people are not afraid to, to clearly say what they think and so on. And so there, there does need to be a breath of God. I mean, the, the wonderful thing is that more and more Jews are finding the Lord. And for this we have to thank God. And I still believe that there will come a day when the chief rabbis, I'm not saying they will phone me, but I think they will get in touch with one of us who are leaders and ask us to come in and really talk about what they can, their attitude should be to the Messianic community. You've had some, you've had some entrance into uh, well, close friendships with rabbis. Yes. Uh, how uh, is that uh, something that you can share? Uh, well, I don't want to uncover anybody, but I mean, years ago, um, uh, uh, one of the men who's not Jewish, um, he is an eye specialist working in uh, the eye hospital, and he is a wonderful believer. And he phoned me and he said, Lance, do you think you could do something very unusual? And I said, well, what is it? So he said, well, there's a rabbi. He's the head of two or three yeshivot, which are Bible schools, and head of a synagogue as well. And he would very much like to come to, to speak with you. Uh, he said, the problem is this. He doesn't want anyone else to be in the house. And when he rings, he will tell you the exact time he will be there. As soon as he rings, please open the front door and let him in so he's not seen. And he will come after dark. This was in the winter. And I said, well, I cannot give you a, a promise on this because I said the fellows who are with me 
have, have always understood that everything that happens in the house, people we see, people who come to talk with us, either from government or anything else, they don't talk about it. Don't divulge it to anybody. Because we did have a lot of different uh, people at one time. You know what I mean? So, um, in the end, I, I, I said, I can trust these boys. I said, just tell the rabbi, I, I absolutely trust them. They won't, they won't say anything to anybody. So, back came a phone call from this dear brother, and he said, he's agreed, as long as you let him in immediately. Well, when I went, the, 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 the bell rang, I went straight to the door. He wanted me to go, not to any of the <laughs> fellows who were with us. I went to the door, I opened There was a man with a great brim right the way round here with pantaloons, silk stockings up to here, pantaloons from here to here. I mean, absolutely haredi. You know, that's say ultra, ultra orthodox. And I quickly opened the door, let him in, locked it and shut the door. And I took one look at him, I could see he knew the Lord. And I said to him, I don't have to be told you've had an experience of the Lord. And he said, how could you tell? I said, well, I can see it in your face. It shines. Yes, he said, Jesus appeared to me. So then I said, well, what happened? So we went into the room. He said, I know you have a kosher home, so I know I can have something to drink and eat and have a cup of tea or whatever else. Um, and I said, yes, we are kosher. So we did it. I sat down with him. <laughs> and we had the most amazing time. I mean, I, and, and terribly funny in one way because here was this man who looked like unbelievable. I mean, like something out of the Middle Ages. And I, I, I sort of took a look at his face and every time he smiled, so he radiated the Lord. And so... In the end, I, I, as we talked, I said, well, what happened? And he said, well, the Lord appeared to me in the night. And he said, he said to me, I'm Yeshua, your Messiah. And he said, I kept on saying, Yeshua, Yeshua, Yeshua. And he said, my wife woke up and said, you're having a nightmare. But he said, no, I don't think so. He said, this Yeshua has appeared to me. Then he got baptized, which is a really big step. Then, then I, after we had quite a talk, I said to him, um, uh, tell me, I said, are there any others like you in Meir Shadim? He lives in Meir Shadim, in the Orthodox area of Jerusalem. And he said, well... He said, there are a number of other rabbis that have had the same experience as I. Really, I said, yes, he said, there are. And he said, we've all talked together what we should do. He said, but why should we become Baptist or, or Pentecostal or, or Church of Scotland, he said. And he said, it doesn't belong to us. He said, wouldn't it be better for us to remain as Jews and know the Lord and pray and wait? 
because there will come a day when a great move of the Holy Spirit takes place and we're ready. So he said, that's what we've all agreed. We've all got about seven or, seven or eight of them. And he said that some of them were leaders of synagogues and so on. I think I found it extraordinary. Finally, I said to him, I hope you don't mind me saying this, I said, but don't some of these Christians say to you, shouldn't you get all that dress, you know, take it all off and dress normally? Oh, yes, he said, but what's the point? I mean, you know, I mean, I can take it all off and dress in a different way, but he said, what's he going to do? He's a dear man. Every time I speak, he's appeared at different places to hear. And, uh, I mean, I, I, I believe there are, are numbers of people who really know the Lord. When we had the Messianic Congress at the Diplomat Hotel in the old days, this is years ago, um, off I went to, the, uh, the, uh, to it and there were nearly 3,000. Well, where did they all come from? I mean, we, none of us who'd organized the thing, Sid wrote and the others, couldn't, well, what, what is this? Uh, huh? They'd all come out of the woodwork. They came from Moshavim and Kibbutzim all over the country and we found out a whole number of secret believers we had no idea existed. So there are things happening in Israel. The point is there will come a time when the Holy Spirit will fall upon the Jewish people. I don't know how near we are to that. I think we're much nearer than we've ever been before. It will happen suddenly and it will be the complement to Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit fell on that day in Shavuot, um, all those, those thousands of years ago, it fell on 120 Jews and turned them into this church. I mean, it constituted them the body of the Lord Jesus of which he was head. I think the Holy Spirit will fall again when it happens. It will happen all over and he, he will fall on synagogues and yeshivot and, and the same thing will happen. People will be saved and their eyes will be opened. That's what I believe. I mean, and when that happens, I think it will be a shock to everybody else. I, I, I really think we're very near to it. And that's where we need intercession. Enduring, continuous intercession until it happens. Because we know it's the will of God because it says it in the word. That the Lord will pour out. It says first of all, and all the na- he will destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And then it says, and in that day, I will pour out the spirit of supplication and grace 
upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and they shall look unto me whom they have pierced and shall mourn for him as for an only son. So I, I believe we're pretty near to it. Well, Lance, let's make this the last question. Yes. This has to do with intercession. Um, in seeking the will of God that we are to pray in intercession, how do we know that an idea that comes uh, clear, clearly to us is of God and not of our own invention? That's a very good thing. Um, <laughs> a good question. I mean, one has to be very frightened of people who cook up things. Um, uh, so, but that's where it's very good that you have more than one intercessor. There's a fellowship of intercessors. This is, it will keep you from some one person being crazy or a bit upside down or whatever else. I think that when you have a bunch of people who are bound together and praying through something, when it becomes clear that this may be the will of God, generally speaking, you've got the witness of two or three other people who feel this is it. This is what the Lord is saying. I mean, the scripture is very clear about this. It's just a question of timing. When is it going to happen? I think we're pretty near to it because the whole Middle East is in a total state of disarray. The fact that the Muslim Brotherhood uh, or, or, or extremist Muslim are, are all, all around us now. And the fact that America is upset with us, the present administration, um, I think will only drive... Uh, Israelis to the Lord after all when and Jacob became Israel he was alone when the visitor the heavenly visitor appeared to him and wrestled with him and it was only like the Lord he could have knocked out Jacob in a moment but he, be, he weakened himself just like Calvary crucified in weakness he weakened himself and allowed Jacob to be the top man in, in that fight. I think it's amazing. And, uh, of course, the end, of course, the other thing was that, um, that I don't know if you remember the story, but um, dear old Jacob saw two groups of angels. He called it in Hebrew, Machanaim, which means two companies. And he thought, that's funny. One company for Rachel, one company for Leah. But no company for me. Isn't that strange? Then he realized that um, in front of him was his brother, Jacob's brother Esau, and behind him was Uncle Laban, very angry. And I think that with that, that sort of Uncle Laban behind him, his twin brother in front of him, and two groups of angels, and they didn't seem to be anything to do with him, only with the children and the wives. <laughs> 
And I think that that was just the right way. The Lord is a wonderful psychologist. He thought I'd frighten him to death. Poor old Jacob wrestled with that heavenly visitor until the Lord got... Really, the Lord allowed himself to get into Jacob's wrestling grip. He couldn't get free. He tried to get free. Finally, Jacob said, when he got hold of Jacob, let me go. And he said, well, what is your name? Well, I mean, it's not as if the Lord didn't know his name. From his birth, the Lord had known. So why did he say, what's your name? But what he wanted to do was he wanted Jacob to own up. Because, I mean, if Jacob had been clever, he could have said, I'm Abraham's grandson. Or I, I'm Isaac's son. You see, that would have got him out of it. But instead he said, I'm Jacob. And Jacob in Hebrew, Yaakov, originally meant twister. It's the best way to think, it's a very colloquial way of putting it. Um, and then he grabbed his, the, 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 the heel of his brother and tried to, to hold his brother back so he could be the first not let his brother be the first. So, so really, the best way to understand Yaakov, why did the parents call him Yaakov? Because he, they said he twisted his, his arm round the other one's foot and tried to stop him from being the firstborn. So when he said, I'm Jacob, then he said, you're no more Jacob. You are now Israel, prince with God. So I wonder whether, because isn't it interesting that when you come to um, a Roman letter, you know what I talked about this evening, about the three chapters? Eleventh chapter says this, it says, even as it is written, there shall come out of uh, uh, Zion a deliverer, and he shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Well, I find that very interesting. The verse says, just before it, and so all Israel shall be saved. Next minute, he's talking about Jacob. So you've got the same thing again, and it makes me wonder whether the God in his own infinite wisdom is going to tr- put Israel into a position where she has no hope. She's desperate. And then the Lord will do it. Well, when that time is, I don't know, but it, I don't think it's that far off. So pray for us. Best way to put it. You don't have to stand. Sit down already. <laughs> thank you, thank you.